0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry Jerome Rowland is here with us somehow, someway, and this is Stuff You Should Know. (laughs) Transcendentalism. Man, were you into transcendentalism when you were a teenager? Seems about Of course when I was. Yeah.
0: In, in college mainly, uh, as an English major is when I kind of got into it.
1: Okay. I discovered these guys at age like 14. Nice. And was super into them for a while. Couldn't make heads or tails of a lot of the stuff they were talking about, but I just, yeah. something about it just hit me just right. So I think I caught like the the ethos of it, but not necessarily the intellectual aspect of it. But I was into them big time. They actually um, led me away from church. Oh yeah, well, that's good. I met the trans—I <laughs> met the transcendentalist, and that was it for me in church. I started going to to the woods on Sunday mornings instead. Yeah, I mean,
0: this is one that hits home for me because, as everyone knows, I love being in the woods and I love camping and I love my camp. Um, by the way, we got a bear. Did I send you the picture? No.
1: You got a, a bear? A... Do you have one like chained up at your <laughs> campground or something?
0: No, I have a a trail cam set up, which is a motion-activated camera that you just strap to a tree, and hunters use them a lot and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I got one and pointed it towards my like my camp area, uh, and we've been calling it Crow Cam because we've gotten 400 pictures of crows since I set it up. Uh, and every once in a while, I'll get a, a picture come through at night the next morning, and I'll be really excited because, like, maybe a fox or a raccoon, never anything. Mm-hmm. And the other morning, I woke up, and it gives a little thumbnail, and I saw a little thumbnail. I saw a large creature, and I freaked out to, like, rush to the app to to embiggen it. And uh, it's a bear, dude. Pretty neat. A little blackie. I'm going to text it to you right now.
1: Okay, please do.
0: Just wandering through the camp, and there was something about it that just thrilled me to no end, to know that I'm sharing the woods with this squeezy little bear.
1: That's pretty cool, Chuck.
0: I, and he's not going to attack me. Don't worry, people. He is, uh, urchy. Uh, there's never been a bear fatality in Georgia, and I think only two in the history of the southeastern United oh, States. Oh, that's so.
1: great. That's a cute, it looks like you could take that bear anyway if you wanted to. Do you see him? Yeah, that's a cute bear. Isn't that crazy? He's out looking for a picnic basket.
0: I guess so. Um, but long way of saying, That I love the woods, and so transcendentalism in college is something that kind of hit home. Mm -hmm. And then for a little while, I was kind of like, but wait a minute. Yeah. Is this just a bunch of lazy people and a bunch of, I hate to say mental masturbation, but (laughs) like, what do they actually do? (laughs) But then this made me feel a lot better about it because – the transcendentalists led to a lot of great progressive reforms.
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's definitely phase two of being into transcendentalism is hating the transcendentalists and like <laughs> I think so really bit. resenting them for who they were and all that. But this brought me back to it for sure as well. I'm a big-time friend of uh, Thoreau's now, again. I used to think he was just a complete useless waste. Who just dropped out and probably lived off his parents' money or something like that, and did did his own thing. It was not like that at all. And I think we owe Thoreau uh, an episode. Frankly, I think he's a pretty cool dude.
0: Yeah, a lot of myths and legends around Thoreau. Yeah. Um, and real quick before we dive in, I did post that picture on my Instagram at Chuck the Podcaster.
1: Very nice shout you can see out. See that bear? That was some good social media promotions. <laughs>
0: All right, so we're talking about the mid-1830s, and this idea that these people came forward with, very anti-establishment ideas, Mm -hmm. where they basically said, uh, everybody has the light of the divine truth, and we should all be self-reliant, we should all look within ourselves to find that light, and we should be self-reliant in many ways, spiritually self-reliant, Or maybe you want to go out to the woods and live and be self-reliant on yourself. Mm -hmm. But basically, everyone is entitled to freedom in this country, or back then, supposedly, and still the case, supposedly. Mm -hmm. But uh, it led to a lot of great things later on with these progressive movements. But initially, and throughout the sort of the heyday of Transcendentalism, it was just a lot of thought and talking about and writing about these thoughts.
1: Yeah, it was a philosophical movement. It was a philosophical movement associated with action and doing things um, as much as it was about sitting down and writing things out and figuring out arguments and theories to root these things to. Uh, and actually, that's where the transcendentalists tripped themselves up, is they took something that was very pure and didn't really need any rooting in, 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 um, in theory. It could just be Like, walking through the woods is good in and of itself. It doesn't need a theory that explains why it's good in and of itself. And so when they did try to do that, they actually kind of shot themselves in the foot because they couldn't do it. And that's one reason why, you know, you start to hate the transcendentalists after you really start liking them because a lot of it is just kind of hooey when they tried to explain it because it didn't need explaining. I saw somebody describe it that— they, it didn't need theory any more than an airplane needs wires to hold it up. Yeah, and yet they they tried that because I think they wanted to explain it and they wanted to be taken seriously. Emerson definitely considered himself a philosopher, whether he was or not. I think a lot of people consider him a philosopher, but when they tried to ground it in philosophy, it kind of got screwed up, like trying to nail jello to the wall or something like that.
0: <laughs> uh, it has been called the first sort of distinctive. Uh, American philosophy, like truly American philosophy. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was influenced by a lot of things, though, um, like kind of any movement. And this one starts out with the Puritans who came over, who said that, you know, they they were very much individualist, and it's sort of that root of individualism that helped sort of inform the early transcendentalist thoughts.
1: Yeah, the Puritans took, I guess, they we actually kind of talked a little bit about it that protestant work ethic they also brought with them the idea of self-reliance of of like you know um being able to make your own way in the world mm-hmm. and it took it took shape for them in the form of religion where there was this idea that you know if you were a good christian and studied your bible you know religiously um you could be as close to God as, as if you were, you know, some Catholic in, in Italy who, you know, had to go through a priest and a cardinal and a bishop and the pope to get to God. Right. That that's not how it worked. The individual was able to connect with God as well. And that was, you know, a, a big difference in Puritan um, thought. And that was one of the big things that, that grew out of it when they arrived here in America was— the idea of self-reliance in the individual, and, and that very much um influenced the uh the transcendentalists.
0: Yeah, uh European romanticism certainly played a part too. They were that was sort of the first emo movement <laughs> where feelings uh there were feelings mattered basically and emotion mattered. Mm-hmm. Uh it wasn't all about reason and order like it was in the Enlightenment. And things really took a turn after the Paris Peace Treaty. Of 1815, because previous to that, during the American Revolution and uh, the War of 1812, the Napoleonic Wars, you couldn't really go to America, I'm sorry, Americans really couldn't go to Europe mm-hmm. and didn't even have a lot of great access to the literature of Europe. But after that Paris Treaty in 1815, the, the travel floodgates opened and a lot of um, sort of scholarly literary types went over to Europe. And started studying Goethe and Byron and Shelley and Wordsworth. And it became, um, it was like lighting a fire, basically.
1: Yeah, which, I mean, like, they missed out on, a, a you know, the beginning of Romanticism, which was a big response to, like, the French Revolution, which was a in a larger way a response to the Enlightenment, because the en- Enlightenment changed everything, you know. It, we had a really good episode about that, if I do say so ourselves. Yeah, um, good one. But it... it Placed an emphasis on reason and rationality and facts, and then the French Revolution came along and and the people took control and they weren't able to uphold the ideas or the ideals of the of the um the enlightenment of things like free speech and you know freedom of thought, and instead turned into like bloody fascists who killed forty thousand people in a year or two. Um, and so, the, that led to this recoiling, being repulsed by the idea of just cold rationalism and an adherence to facts. And instead, it, 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 it turned into that romanticism that basically said, you know, imagination, beauty, goodness, these are the important things. These are the true things that are, they're, are they're the, the eternal truths of the universe that bring you to godliness. Forget facts. Facts are stupid basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, I find myself, the more we've done the show, become really interested in like what causes mm, movements mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. F- it, whether it's uh, a philosophical movement or, or you know, nose to the grindstone, you know, get out and do something movement. I just think it's really interesting because it's, it's about a bunch of like-minded people coming together in a very specific time and place. Yeah. or Or it could fall apart very easily. And, In the mid-1830s in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, a minister named George Ripley got some people together who were thinking along the same lines as him, uh, who were inspired by these same literary greats of Europe and the Romantics, and uh, formed the Transcendental Club. And they eventually started publishing a a three-time annually literary paper called The Dial, Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they had about 300 subscribers at its peak it cost $3 and they published it in four volumes for about 4 years and this had poetry and prose and literary and music criticism and it was you know it was a literary magazine like we think about today but it was happening way back then in Boston
1: Yeah and it, it kind of um was focused on beauty and imagination um and transcendental ideals which was basically that 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 if you had imagination that that was the thing that kind of brought you to um to like a communion with the universe or god or the divine whatever whatever higher experience you were looking for it was going to be through imagination and one of the ways i saw it put chuck was not that they they didn't like facts they were kind of slaves to facts because the fact was there's there's badness in the in the world there's badness in the universe and they they just mm-hmm. couldn't account for that that like they just couldn't make heads or tails of it Um, Because they were so focused on good. But they they preferred imagination over facts because they considered imagination, the imagination of the individual, to be more powerful than facts. Like, facts were that Plato died a couple thousand years ago, and you'll never get to meet him because you're separated by time and space. Imagination is that you can go wrestle, have a tickle fight in a meadow with Plato if you want. And right. that, that can make you happy. <laughs> you can go experience that if your imagination is, is fine tuned enough. And then, in doing that, that kind of starts to make you question reality, like just how real or unreal was that tickle fight you just had with Plato? And your imagination is what took you. To overcome those facts. So to them, society was becoming increasingly industrialized and preoccupied with money and economy and stuff like that. And it was losing its way. It was losing its imagination. And this was a big response to that. And that was a huge ideal of the uh, transcendentalists, that it was the imagination of the individual that could make you a happier person more attuned to beauty and goodness and that if you were off doing that you were going to connect more fully with other people and if if enough people did that then you would have a much better society that was ultimately the first goal of transcendentalism the earliest um, kind of goal of the movement was that
0: that's right and little known fact plato's tickle spot was uh
1: his thigh inner thigh upper inner thigh
0: That thigh, like a a horse eating corn?
1: Yep, exactly. There's a birthmark there (laughs) to guide the way even.
0: All right, let's take a break. And we'll talk a little bit about Walden Pond and Thoreau and whether or not he was who we think he was right after this. Henry David Thoreau, mm-hmm. Weirdo, one, of the, recluse. one of the all-stars of the transcendentalist movement. Chin-beard enthusiast. He's, uh, <laughs> he was a chin-bearder. <laughs> he was one of these guys. He went to, Wal- uh, to Walden to live deliberately. He went to the woods to live deliberately, yes. as he said, mm-hmm. in 1845 and built a cottage on Walden Pond near Concord, Mass, for a couple of years. And this is one of those where if you have someone who doesn't like Thoreau, they will be very quick to point out a lot of things. A lot. You know, he was only a half a mile from the main road, and he went into town all the time, and he was less than two miles from his main house, Mm -hmm. and he ate dinner at Emerson's all the time, and his mother and his sister would bring him baked goods and donuts every weekend. Nice. And those are all true things. So I, I think it bears saying that over the years, the idea that Thoreau was this Luddite who just went to live completely by his own resources, all alone in the woods, like the great History Channel uh survival competition show. <laughs> uh And that is not true. And I don't think he ever purported that to be true. He wrote about the interesting aspects of being out there alone and his thoughts, in his books. And I think people got that confused and just said, oh, well, that's all he did out there. And he never saw people. He had parties, and there were people everywhere. He walked into town just about every day.
1: Yeah,
0: That wasn't the whole point of it all, was that he was going to go be self-reliant and as a survivalist. Or
1: antisocial. He wasn't, like, turning his back on society. No, and he liked some technologies, too. Yeah. So Thoreau is misunderstood, and I
0: think not because of his own hand in writings. I think because people have romanticized this idea of this, like, hermit, basically, and this is not the case.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, he, the facts are this. He did build himself a one-room house on some of Emerson's property right alongside on the shores of Walden Pond. Yeah. Um, he spent his time writing, um, reading everything from the, the Greek uh, philosophers to um, religious texts, whatever he could get his hands on. Um, and then more than anything... Walking in the woods, like spending his time out in nature um, and just enjoying it on its face, like finding the beauty in nature and seeing it absolutely everywhere and letting it like increase the his spirit and, and lift his spirits that that's all he wanted to do in life. And then when he needed money, he would go work as a surveyor or maybe make some pencils in his family's pencil factory. Apparently, they made the finest in the country at the time. Um, and then he would make that money and then go back and go go live by doing what he wanted to do. It wasn't necessarily to tell people how to live. That's how he wanted to live. And he went and did it. And... However you feel about Thoreau, man, I mean, like, just the fact that he did that, how many people do that, you know, and do it not because the, the CIA's after them or the government's listening in on their affairs or trying to <laughs> keep them off of the pasture land. This guy did it for his own purposes. He wanted to, like, go live a life that he found fulfilling like that, and and he went and did it, and it's hats off to anybody who does that.
0: Yeah, and if you're, I don't know, if you're maybe a little bit younger uh, as a listener, and you think, well, that didn't sound that radical, and there are plenty of people who do that kind of thing today, it's true, Mm -hmm. but that's not how it worked in 1845. Like, if you were a grown, able-bodied man, you you were expected to have a job and contribute to society and work. You didn't spend time reading and writing and taking walks in the woods for pleasure. It just... That's just not how things were back then. So it was a very radical thing back then to do. Um, it was also very radical to say, you know what? I don't want to pay my taxes because uh, you enslave people here in the United States. And we're in a very uh, t- awful war against Mexico. And so, you know what? I'm not going to fund this stuff anymore with my – what little money I make. So you can stick that in your pipe and smoke it, U.S. government. Mm-hmm. They came after him. They arrested him. He spent a night in jail. Someone paid off his debt. He do you was, know who
1: that was? No, he still didn't. He never knew it okay. was a rel, an anonymous relative, and he was not very happy about that at all.
0: Right, because he didn't want to like just have someone pay it. That was the whole point, right?
1: Yeah, he and they forced him out of jail the next day, and he was like, "No, like I, I'm trying, I'm I'm trying to do something here," and it didn't work.
0: Right, but his very famous essay, "Civil Disobedience," uh, kind of grew from this experience. Uh, And he has a really great quote here that kind of hits home to me Uh, and anyone who uh, thinks they might can change things or can't Mm -hmm. let every man make known what kind of government would command his respect. And that will be one step toward obtaining it Uh, again, just not necessarily a blueprint for uh, an action, although there was plenty of action later, but uh, just sort of a thought like, something to ponder.
1: Yeah, and on on that poll tax, um, or I think it was a head tax, um, which I think that is the same pay. thing. Yeah, and he, did, he hadn't paid it for years. Um, he was inspired by another transcendentalist, Amos Alcott, Louisa May's father, who was a big transcendentalist thinker. Um, and he hadn't paid poll taxes for several years because of slavery as well. But then with the Mexican-American War of, I think, 1836, when— um, Thoreau started organizing protests against it and calling for other people to not pay their tax, that's when he was finally arrested, sought out and arrested. Um, and I was reading a little bit about that war and why he and others protested against it. It was apparently an extraordinarily unjust and unprovoked war where a lot of American volunteers went down and committed uh, war crimes and atrocities against Mexican civilians for basically basically unprovoked um, and there was a lot of reason for people to oppose it. But that didn't mean that there was a lot of people opposing it. It's just that you can really kind of look back historically and mm-hmm. and find yourself siding with the people who protested against that war. But at the time, it was pretty radical to... To protest against it was a fairly popular war until the press started reporting from the front lines and people started finding out what was going on down there. Like the people, people in America were whipped up into like this anti-Mexican fervor at the time, and we invaded Mexico, you know, at the behest of the public. So to stand in the way of that was a it was a very brave thing to do, and that's pretty typical of what Thoreau and the transcendentalists were into. They would look at something and say, "This is morally wrong." This is not okay. I'm going to stand up against it. Maybe it'll inspire other people or not to do that. But at the very least, I will have done what I think is moral. And I found another quote, Chuck, from Civil Disobedience that I thought kind of got that point across really well, too. It said that um, uh, Thoreau believed it is not a man's duty as a matter of course to devote himself to the eradication of any, even the most enormous wrong. He may still properly have other concerns to engage him, but it is his duty, at least, to wash his hands of it and not give it practically his support. So in that sense, he was like, I, mm. I'm at the very least not going to pay taxes to support this. If I, right. I, I, I might not be able to keep the U.S. out of the war, but I'm not going to give you money to go fight that war. I don't want to pay taxes anymore either. You know, I mean, it goes to a lot I'm of unsavory stop. stuff. So there you go.
0: <laughs> if only were that easy. Uh, maybe some benefactor would pay my fine.
1: Right, right, but then that's supposed to tick you off because that means that they didn't get your point.
0: No, that'd be fine with me. <laughs> all right, so I guess we should talk a little bit about some of the activism that sprung from this movement because all these cool hippy-dippy philosophical thoughts and musings are great. But uh, action is what is really uh, interesting to me. And... um. That's something, like, again, that's something that I don't think we talked a lot about in college. It was more just sort of an English class Mm
1: -hmm. right? Yes, type of thing. They should not just be taught in English class or even just philosophy class. Like, they should be taught in civics and history. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I feel like that that really does them a disservice, and I never put my finger on it until you just said that. So, thank you. Thank you, Chuck. I'm going to change
0: the educational system, and that's where they started, too. (laughs) Uh, The transcendentalists knew that education was the key. Uh, they thought it should be free. They thought uh, anyone should be able to go, any race, any creed. That's radical uh, men and women. The time. It was very radical. Uh a lot of them were teachers and uh quite a few of them even founded their own um like really forward thinking progressive schools. Mm-hmm. Uh I think, including uh Peabody and Thoreau and uh, Bronson Alcott.
1: Yeah. Um I think that was Amos. Good old Amos Alcott. Oh, was that father. his first name or something? Yeah, I think Bronson, that was his nickname because he was so tough.
0: <laughs> hey, come here, Bronson. <laughs> so,
1: um, yeah, they went after, like, they identified education, as most social movements do, as, like, a key. And and they definitely went after that. But I think also, like you said, it was in part because that was their background. They saw, you know, they had seen firsthand what needed, how, how much improving it needed. And one of the things, Chuck, is, like, what you just described— that what they thought the education system would be, it, you know, pretty closely resembles what we have today. And when you see this stuff and you just take for granted what the transcendentalists were for, it really gets across, like, how successful they were over the course of a couple centuries because these were the first people who were agitating for this stuff in America. Yeah. You know, they were the first ones just to kind of wake up and say, wait, wait, wait. A lot of this stuff is going wrong. This could be better this way. This could be better that way. And they ultimately, far past the times when they died, were successful in that. I think that's a great time for a break. You set us up nicely. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right. We'll talk about more activism right after this.
1: So one of the uh one of the big ones that the transcendentalists were involved in from the outset was um abolition of slavery. They yes. were fervent uh anti-slave activists and not just <clears throat> like writing lectures and sermons and letters and um you know speaking out against slavery. And again this is the 1830s, maybe the 1840s. This is not like there were a lot of people who were still totally cool with slavery in the United States at the time. Yeah, These were some of the first people speaking out about it. But these people also put their money where their mouths were in a lot of ways, including Thoreau, who was, if if you were ho-hum about Thoreau before, um, was a, personally a conductor on the Underground Railroad.
0: That's right. He got in there, got his hands dirty. Uh, a lot of the anti-enslavement movement were women mm-hmm. uh, of the Transcendentalist movement. Um, one of the rock stars of the Transcendentalist movement was a woman named Margaret Fuller. Yeah who um, she was never apparently super comfortable being sort of tagged as a transcendentalist. Mm. She hung out in that crowd, but she was not religious. She was, uh, by all accounts, probably agnostic, maybe even atheist, mm-hmm. sort of danced on the fringes of the Unitarian Church. But um, religion, it, it was not a part of her sort of mindset. So that's where she kind of differed some in transcend, uh, from the standard transcendentalist. Uh, But she was, uh, for a little while, I think for two of the three years, she was the editor, uh, two of the four years of The Dial, a big friend of Emerson. Um, She wrote a book in 1845 called Woman in the 19th Century. And it was really one of the first sort of Mm proto-feminist tomes. And um, she was way ahead of her time. She went to women's prisons to interview them. She was a literary critic and an editor and a writer and advocated for women to have not just jobs, but like any job. She was like, go out and be a ship captain if you want to. Um, really, really forward-thinking woman was Margaret Fuller.
1: Yeah, she started, I think, at age 29, The these things called The Conversations, which was a series of discussions and talks that were super feminist, which was, again, really radical at the time because we're talking the 1830s. And um, she, she, like Thoreau, she actually died young. She died at age 40. And so, we remember Margaret Fuller. Did you see how she died? Yes. It was astounding. So, Margaret Fuller went to Italy to become part of the Italian Revolution, right? Yeah. This is how she spent her last couple of years. The revolution fell. Uh, It wasn't successful. um, But she fell in love with a younger revolutionary, had a child, and they sailed back to America, right? And then... Yes. Fire Island struck.
0: Almost all the way back to America, they had a shipwreck, I think, about 50 yards from shore. Oh, my
1: God.
0: And died. Yeah. Um, some people weren't ne- like, apparently the rescue attempt, even though they were so close to shore, was just um, not strong. I don't know why. Uh, I'd like to look a little bit more into it. But apparently Thoreau grabbed Emerson and they were like, let's, you know, I don't know how much longer it was after the shipwreck, but let's go try and find her. Mm-hmm. At least body, and uh, I'm not sure if they ever recovered her, but very I I tragic death. Didn't.
1: Yeah, she, her, her son, and her husband all drowned. Oh. Um, <clears throat> I know, and and again, she was age 40, so you, th- it's pretty astounding and remarkable that we remember her because her productive years were just uh, an 11 year period from age 29 to age 40. But it just goes to show you what a powerhouse she was. I mean, she went and fought in the Italian Revolution. That's a, that's just super ba. Yeah and it seemed
0: like any job that she had like she just did great. Like Emerson when The Dial was founded, hmm. he, he that was the first person he thought of. He was like, "Well, I need to go get fuller on this." Yeah. Because she's a crack writer and editor and uh I think she was supposed to make like $200 a year doing that but never got paid a dime. Um The Dial like, you know, was not a big money maker. I don't think they even paid the contributor, so it didn't last that long, right. but uh, very forward-thinking literary magazine, and uh, Margaret Fuller was a big reason why it happened to begin with.
1: Yeah. Um. So. F- so obviously, feminism and women's suffrage and equal rights for women, um, were huge parts of the transcendental movement, as was um abolition. Um, and I I I looked to see like how transcendentalism ended, um, and apparently it was a it it was like a um. It a, never ended, man. A, no. It was like a sparkler. Like it burned really bright uh, uh-huh. for a very short amount of time. So, uh, like the whole transcendental movement lasted maybe to the 1850s. One of the big things that, that that took it down was, you know, Margaret Fuller and Henry David Thoreau, two of the really big central figures of the whole thing, died fairly young. Thoreau died of tuberculosis in his early 40s. Um, uh, Emerson remained— but um again there is a there was a big problem in like getting across what the transcendentalists were all about because they would get yeah. tripped up in theory and all that stuff and then also I saw that the um the scientific method started to gain ground around the 1850s 1860s and people turned their attention back to logic and reason and the enlightenment ideals um, which kind of took them away from that romanticism of the transcendentalists
0: yeah and you know i think my takeaway from this now Mm -hmm. restudying it all these years later is like it it's a philosophy that doesn't have to go away completely and i think a lot of people would argue that it's still very robust and in a lot of ways, it's just sort of morphed and taken on different forms. But you can have transcendentalist feelings and philosophies and also believe in science. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think those things have to be separated out. So while it did burn bright and die out, I think clearly the, the kids of the 1960s and 70s were inspired by these people uh, and people like you and I and college kids still today that read this stuff for the first time. I think everyone can take a little bit of that with them if they want uh, or not, but it's certainly not, like, outdated, I don't think.
1: No, it's not. No, for sure. I think that spirit still continues on today, for sure. And peop- anybody who cares about social justice, environmental justice, um, those are all very much transcendental ideals. And anybody who, like, stops and, you know, appreciates you know, the way sunlight is filtering on a flower mm-hmm. or something like that. You're being a transcendentalist right there. It's really easy to over-explain. Over it's really easy to to um, also just kind of be whatever that transcendentalist ideal was. But that, that was it in a nutshell. Just appreciating the beauty in the world so much that you basically dedicate your life to, to appreciating it and not taking it for granted, you know?
0: Yeah. And every time I go to the family camp and I have that cooler full of beer— And my mini bike and my solar power lighting up those beautiful string lights through the woods. Mm -hmm. And I'm burning a fire. And I got my Bluetooth speaker playing some Fleet Foxes. Mm -hmm. And I'm burning that fire from that firewood that was cut by the nice gentleman who delivers it down there and stacks it for me. Mm -hmm. I really find myself at one with nature. Very nice, Chuck.
1: You're a transcendentalist. (laughs) Cut and dried. I like camping. Let's just leave it at that. I like glamping. Yeah, it's it's almost clamping. Yeah, sounds like it. You have me at Bluetooth. You're still sleeping in a, in a
0: tent on the ground, though.
1: That's fine. That's fine. Um, you got anything else? I got nothing else. So look for a Thoreau episode someday, and in the meantime, go out and appreciate the beauty in the world. And since I said appreciate the beauty in the world, it's time for listener mail.
0: Uh, I'm gonna call this "Chickens in Ancient Rome." remember we talked about that uh which one was that that there weren't chickens in ancient uh, Rome.
1: superstition ancient superstitions
0: right so this is and we heard from a few people about this people that know a lot more about ancient rome than we do and this is from mike uh yeah exactly mike Trina. uh hey guys my wife katura is a big fan of your podcast and she was listening earlier today and asked me about this my degrees are both in greek and latin language and culture Chickens were relatively rare in ancient Rome, Hmm. although they did exist. uh, Chicken was a delicacy that only aristocrats would eat, and even then, only on rare occasions. The peasantry would rarely eat meat at all, except on festival days. Chickens were, however, prized for their use in divination, like we talked about,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, with the wishbones, and were often carried with armies into battle so that the uh, augurs could attempt to determine the auspices of a coming conflict. I recommend the book, Handbook to Life in Ancient Rome, uh, Atkins and Atkins. The edition I have is 1994. Mm -hmm. Oxford University Press has all sorts of great info about daily life as an average Roman citizen.
1: That sounds like a cool book. It does. I can't wait to read the chapter on chickens. Yeah. (laughs) That's from uh, Mike. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Mike. That's exactly what I was hoping to hear or the kind of thing I was hoping to hear when I asked for your help. So thank you for hearing me. Um, I also blasted you with the ESP plea for requests, so maybe that's where you really were prompted to respond. Who knows? I wonder if that's an audio book. I'd like to listen to that one. Uh, what's it called? Chickens in Rome? Yep. By Mike? No, it's called uh, uh, Handbook to Life in Ancient Rome. Very nice. Uh, well, and it was Mike who wrote in, right? That was Mike. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot to Mike and thank you to your SO for telling you that we needed your help. And uh, thank you to everybody out there listening in podcast land. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email. Wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, Roman style, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeart Radio, visit the iHeartRadio
1: app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.